And then also, I think Billy, I mean, John mentioned their outlines uh, on the table, kind of a mini, mini outline. So, so what I'm going to do is uh, on page 67 of the book, um, read from there. I'm actually going to read the I'm going to read the, the very first um, paragraph and then also really the last paragraph of the chapter. So let's let's uh, do this. Uh, Gruden uh, makes this statement in the first paragraph. He says, Jesus Christ was and forever will be fully God and fully man in one person. Of course, the title of chapter nine is Who's Christ, right? So that's, I, I forgot to say that earlier. That person changed the course of history forever. Then in the last paragraph of the chapter, uh, chapter page seven, he says, this is probably the most amazing miracle of the entire Bible. The eternal son of God, himself fully God, became fully man. And in doing so, joined himself to human nature forever. Uh, Jesus, a man unlike anyone else the world would ever see again, by eternally bringing together the infinite and the finite, changing the course of history forever. So tonight I want to explore <clears throat> this with you a little further um, and look at a little bit more into uh, in greater depth of understanding about who Christ is, both in his humanity and in his deity. Um, <clears throat> think about this. If, if one would do like a, a, a person on the street interview of folks, all right, think about that. And, uh, you know, people you run into <clears throat> on the street and you ask them, who is Jesus? You would likely get a wide variety of answers depending on the background of those answering the questions, right? Um, depending on you know, are they Christian, non-Christian, religious, or non-religious background. And even within the Christian community, who knows <laughs> what answers you'll actually get. So, um, <clears throat> and some of those answers may be quite surprising or even shocking. Um, well, there's a story which is recorded in three of the gospels uh, it's Matthew, in Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke, in which Jesus asked the disciples this question. Do you, you remember that story? Right, in Matthew, we're going to read from Matthew, Matthew 16, 13 through 16. He says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. <clears throat> and he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So I don't want to spend, uh, get too much uh, into a discussion of this passage, um, <clears throat> except to say that uh, uh, this question is the fundamental question that every person born in the human race will face at one time or another, whether in this present life or the end, or at the end when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
what I want what I want to do is to use this passage as a springboard for our discussion of who Jesus is in both his humanity and in his deity. Found in this passage are two titles, other than, of course, Christ is a title of, you know, uh, for Jesus, of course, but but there are two other titles which are commonly used in the New Testament concerning Jesus Christ. One speaks of his humanity and all that entails, and the second speaks to his deity and all that it entails. So let me ask you this. So what are those two titles in this passage which are commonly used of Christ? That we just read, pretty easy actually, but thought I'd just ask that question anyway. What are... Uh, or actually, son, son of God, yeah, son of God. <clears throat> and then you said son of man, right? So th those are the two I had in mind. Um, <clears throat> of course, there are many other titles which are found both in the Old Testament and New Testament that's used of Jesus and Christ. Um, but these are the two I want to focus on tonight since they speak definitively to his humanity, being fully human, and his deity being fully God. So <clears throat> learning and knowing who Jesus is in both his humanity and deity, in deity is so very important in understanding his mission in coming into the world to seek and save that which was lost. In chapter nine of the book, which is where we are at, where at uh, uh, Gruden focuses on both of these, his humanity and deity, and what it, why it matters. So let's talk about, we're gonna start and talk about his humanity um, <clears throat> and its implications for us, really for all of mankind. Um, I don't know if you ever <clears throat> thought about this or heard this uh, about Jesus, but in the New Testament, do you know that, you know, very often Jesus refers to himself as the son of man? Uh, in fact, um, I guess some people have kind of done a study, read through the Gospels uh, a number of times. And uh, in a study of the Gospels, uh, it indicates that Jesus most often refers to himself as the son of man and not the son of God. Uh, not that he doesn't think highly of both. It's, it's just what, you know, at least what we, we see in the, in the Gospels, apparently. So a couple of examples. <clears throat> um, and I, there, are, there are many scripture references, but here are a couple. Uh, Mark 2, verses 10 and 11, it says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Um, <clears throat> Mark 8, there, you know, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days, rise again. And there, there are many others. So, um, <clears throat> so why is Jesus called the Son of Man? Think about that for, for a minute or so. And I don't know, if, have you guys ever given any thought to, to that? Why is he called the son of man? Not 
is yeah right yeah right right yeah right yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah no that's wonderful right so <clears throat> i'm going to actually give you three um usages of this title son of man um <clears throat> excuse me um <clears throat> and then a little later of course we're going to talk about the son of god but um a common understanding and usage of son of man implies and speaks of jesus humanity of course right uh, he's fully human and of course he's fully god in one person um, the scriptural material to support this claim is uh, that he's fully human, and we're going to talk some more about it in a, in a, in a second here, is extensive, and, you know, we'd, we could spend a whole lot of time, you know, talking about it, but we don't have that much time, you know, Jan only gave me 45 minutes, so, <clears throat> excuse me, so, um, anyway, but the book itself, uh, hopefully you had a chance to read it. It's just a few pages, really. Um, touches really on a few of the evidences of this humanity. And so one of them, of course, is the virgin birth. Um, so we'll talk about this in a, in a little bit, and we're going to talk about a couple other things as well. But one of the keys, really, is, you know, as far as his humanity and why he came is his virgin birth. He was born of a human mother. Mary miraculously conceived through the work of the Holy Spirit and gave birth to Jesus. Unlike the rest of us who have human fathers, fathers except Adam and Eve, of course, they didn't. Jesus didn't did not have a human father. And so this whole thing, the virgin birth, um, <clears throat> um, it has great doctrinal implications and significance which we'll get into um, in fact uh, one of the things it does it makes possible or made possible the uniting of uh, fully full deity and uh, full humanity in one person um, <clears throat> and uh, think about this too without a human parent of course we know joseph was not his father but without a human parent um, it would be pretty hard for people to look at Jesus and says, he's human, you know, I mean, let's say God beamed him down from heaven to earth, and there he is. And, you know, it'd be kind of hard for anybody to say, okay, he's, he's really human. But the virgin birth and being born for, you know, Mary is his, his mother, uh, says, yeah, that makes sense. He's human, you know. Um, the virgin birth, <clears throat> Uh, resulted in Jesus being fully human without inherent sin uh, or sin nature inherited from Adam since he did not descend from Adam in the same way in which every human being descended from Adam. So, and we've probably heard that, you know, that makes sense, right? I, you know, um, <clears throat> the human, the, the virgin birth, uh, <clears throat> um, but well, I did I just said that. So, but one might ask the question, and maybe this is a question that you had in your mind: Why did uh, why Jesus did not inherit the sin nature from Mary? 
Have you, you ever thought about that? That question? And, you know, um, in, in fact, probably often when you've heard the, the virgin, you know, conception and birth spoken about in a sinless nature, well, particularly, they, it, they, it's usually somehow attributed to, to, to his, he, he doesn't have a human father. And so they're saying, you know, that's why, because, you know, that passes through the father to the, you know, to, to the children. Um, well, but is that so? Why wouldn't Mary? <laughs> why wouldn't he inherit from Mary? Actually, he had more association with Mary than well, he didn't have any association with Joseph until after they were married. But but even you know the child is within her is her womb and all that. So why 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 didn't that pass along from her? Um, so that's a good a, a very good question, right? But let's see if we could find an answer to that. In, in Luke chapter 1, verses 34 and, and 35, I think provides an answer, actually. And uh, remember, the angel appeared to Mary, told, told her, yeah, you're going to have this child, you know, and all that kind of, you know, stuff. And so Mary was shocked by it all. But Mary said to the angel, <coughs> excuse me, how will this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, Son of God. Interestingly, the word holy is actually used you know, to mean different things, but in this context, it actually speaks of pure and without sin. Um, in other words, you know, and different from, from all others. And uh, <clears throat> Grunin's take on this, of course, it's not in, you know, this <clears throat> condensed book, but in, in um, Bible doctrine. So that's his next book. Um, and then we get into, you know, the, the, the greater, this huge volume. What's it called again, Billy, that other one? Systematic theology. <laughs> yeah, right. <clears throat> so Grudem's take in it is that the work of the Holy Spirit and the power of God was at work in a miraculous way, preventing the transmission of the sin nature from Mary to Jesus. And when I saw that, read that, I said, man, that makes so much sense. Right, um, they were very intimately, and then when 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 the angel said he would be holy, and that it means pure and sinless, but it wasn't because of the lack of a human father, but it was because the Holy Spirit and God was at work at that moment uh, <clears throat> to prevent that from happening. Um, another thing about the significance of his virgin birth is that it shows that salvation, uh, and, and, and this is, I think, you know, think about this, but it shows that salvation ultimately uh, must ultimately come from the Lord and not through human effort. Um, and really, don't we get a glimpse of that in the Old Testament? with Abraham and Sarah, you remember that? They were trying to bring about God's promise. 
right? And by their own efforts, right? And obviously, we know the result of that. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, the, you know, we talk about the, the virgin birth. Um, Jesus, I think someone mentioned this earlier too, Jesus experienced human weakness and limitations. So another evidence of Jesus being fully human is that he experienced these things. He was a human being, right? And he experienced these limitations. And these would include, of course, he had a physical body like ours, which experienced hunger, thirst, tiredness, weariness. Um, in fact, on one occasion in, in, in the book of John, uh, Jesus was traveling along and it tells us that it is actually John 4, 6. So Jesus, wearied as he was with his journey, sat down beside the well in Samaria. You remember that story, right? Um, <clears throat> and really the culmination of his limitation in terms of his human body was seen when he died on the cross. Um, his human body ceased to have life in it. It stopped working, stopped functioning, just as ours do when we die. Um, he rose from the dead of, in a physical body uh, also. Human, it was a human body, physical human body. The difference was it was no longer, it was a glorified body. It was no longer subject to the weaknesses that he had before, disease, death, and those things. <clears throat> Jesus also had a human mind, and as such, he learned things the way other babies <laughs> and human beings really learn, uh, in a sense, right, to, to a degree. Um, I, think the whole, I think the Holy Spirit was very intimately involved in his life in terms of his learning and actually help accelerate his learning uh, as well. But, but as Jesus grew older, he increased in wisdom and the stature and stature in favor with God and man. Um, he felt a full range of emotions like others did, right? He, you know, other humans, he felt joy, he felt sorrow, he, you know, he wept at the, at the death of his friend Lazarus. And there's so, there are many other things, right, we could talk about. Um, <clears throat> so any, any questions so far? Okay, well, we'll keep going then. So Jesus, of course, was without sin. He was sinless. Um, Jesus was like other humans in every respect, except in this one respect. He was without sin. He was tempted in every way humans are tempted, yet he did not sin. Hebrews 4.15 tells us, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sins. <clears throat> now, some have argued, and I don't know if you ever heard this argument, uh, but some have argued that if Jesus never sinned, and these are people who are trying to deny his, his sinlessness, right? Um, uh, not maybe denied, but saying he wasn't a human being. That's why, you know. Um, so, but some have argued that if Jesus never sinned, he must not really be truly human. For how all humans sin. Well, all of us except Jesus, right? Uh, before the fall, <clears throat> excuse me. Adam and Eve were human beings, 
And they were actually, they were created in the stamp of sin. They didn't actually have a sin nature. It, that came after the fall, right? Uh, after the fall, all human beings actually inherited the sin nature from Adam and Eve, except Jesus, of course, he was born without the sin nature. And, uh, and so because of the sin nature, we all had a propensity, a natural propensity really to sin. There was something in us that finds sin attractive, unfortunately, but that's the way it was, and are drawn to it. And so we sin really easily if we would admit it, you know. Now, obviously, we were, as Christians, you know, we have God's spirit within us, and, you know, he tells us if we live by the spirit, we won't fulfill the desires of the flesh, but, but there's a conflict there as well, right? Paul tells us in Galatians, you know, you know, the desires of the spirit are against the desires of the flesh, and we don't always do what, what's right, you know? Um, <clears throat> so Jesus, on the other hand, though, had nothing in him that was attractive to sin. But he also had an advantage, I believe, over Adam and Eve, because he was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, and Adam and Eve were not. And so <clears throat> one reason he did not sin was that he was filled with the Spirit, and he walked by the Spirit. Jesus' life on earth actually demonstrated how we are to live and walk as Christians. Um, <clears throat> We are to walk by the Spirit, and as, as I said a, a minute ago, and we will not carry out the desires of the flesh, according to Paul in Galatians 5.16. <clears throat> but that's, you know, we talk about the conflict as well. We have this flesh contending <laughs> uh, with its own desires, contending with the Spirit, uh, with the Spirit's desire. And so there's this conflict within us. Well, Jesus apparently didn't have such inner conflict in terms of flesh and, and spirit, right? Um, <clears throat> so you might uh, have thought that, you know, you, you just heard me say, well, he was filled with the spirit from his mother's womb. Where did I get that from, <laughs> right? Because you might have thought that he was filled with the spirit at his baptism uh, by John the Baptist. Uh, in fact, was that your understanding, perhaps? Have you heard that? That he, you know, the whole, of course, the Holy Spirit did come upon him at his baptism. But was that when he was actually filled with the Spirit? That's another question, right? <clears throat> um, so what's the scriptural basis to say that he was filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb? Well, for one thing, you know, we know that John the Baptist was. <laughs> Right, and uh, and you might one might have to ask the question: Well, if John the Baptist was, and Jesus is a higher rank, then John, why would you think that he would not be? You know, but that's, but you know, so that 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 that's a good way of maybe looking at it and reasoning it out. But we got to remember also that the Holy Spirit and God the Father were intimately involved in the life and ministry of Jesus from the womb. 
Um, the spirit was present in power with Jesus from the very beginning in his conception and through his growing up as a boy and young man. Um, <clears throat> interestingly, as you read Luke, and I'm sure some of the other gospel um, <clears throat> uh, texts about the, Jesus growing up, but <clears throat> Uh, the re report that Luke gives of Jesus' early years suggests that God was present in his life in a very special way right from the start. It tells us that the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. This was him, him as a child, you know. This was, you know, he wasn't even talking later on as, as a, a grown man. At age six, age 12 rather, he was sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and at his answers. Now, why do you think that is? Think he was just a smart kid? <laughs> well, he was quite smart, but he wasn't just smart. He had carried with him <clears throat> the wisdom of God. Um, he had the Holy Spirit with him. Um, his answer to Mary, when they, they told him that, he, that, that they, his father and her, were looking for him. Remember, he, let, he stayed behind in the temple um, and they were looking, looking for him. <clears throat> well, guess what he says? Did you not know that I had, had to be about my father's house? He wasn't talking about his earthly parents' house. You know, he's talking about his, in fact, you know, I had a discussion with somebody the other day and we were talking about this and, um, <clears throat> and we don't know, you know, but Jesus, I think at a very early age, knew who he was, you know, he, he, I mean, he knew he was the son of God. And this is actually an example of that at age 12, he was about, you know, he was, you know, had to be in his father's house. It wasn't, again, wasn't talking about Joseph or Mary. <clears throat> Luke 2.52 tells us that Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm so sorry about all this drainage. Um, but these are all things which point to the active presence and work of the Holy Spirit in Jesus's life, even before he was baptized by John the Baptist. But what about the baptism? What about that? Um, right? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> if it wasn't the first time the Holy Spirit came upon him and filled him, what was that all about? Not a good question, right? <laughs> so I think the visible descent, and actually we're going to hear from what John the, you know, John the Baptist himself said, but it, the, the, the visible descent of the Spirit from heaven to a light on Jesus was meant to be a sign that showed that he was the Messiah. And that's what the scriptures actually tell us. Um, as John the Baptist said, you know, he says, as, as he bore witness to Jesus' identities, he says, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, 
But the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man in whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I've seen it, and I testify that this is God's chosen one. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. And that is why John could then confidently declare in John 1, 9, remember what he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away right, the sin of the world. <clears throat> Something else to think about Jesus as well is this. In, in Luke 3, um, Luke tells us that Jesus began his ministry at about the age of 30. This was just after he was baptized by John. It was obviously God's plan for him to start at that age, but it, it could also have been because by custom, rabbis were not regarded as mature enough to begin their public ministry until age 30. Um, and this custom was suggested by the law of Moses, which stipulated that priests could not begin their public ministry in full, right? Yeah. <clears throat> until they, <clears throat> they were 30 years old. There's some scripture in, in, in Numbers that you, you know, Numbers 4, um, you could go and, and take, a, take a peek at it there. So, so the argument that if Jesus never sinned, we must, he must not be truly human, for all human is sin is scripturally false, right? It's not, not true. Um, here are some other things. Others have argued, as far as Jesus being sinless, that the temptations with Jesus faced were not real. And there is also the argument that Jesus could not be tempted, right? Why? Why, why would they say that? Because God cannot be tempted by evil. And you've probably heard that as well, that argument. Well, the temptation in the wilderness for 40 days and the ensuing temptations which followed were all real temptations. We, we know that from, for sure. The scriptures don't tell us really <clears throat> what the temptations were in those 40 days. Did you not realize that? He told us, he tells us the temptations after the 40 days, right? And, uh, <clears throat> but, <clears throat> but we, we know about the ones following the 40 days. By then, he would have been extremely hungry. And Satan was likely thinking that Jesus would be weakened in resolve by being very, being very hungry. So that's probably why he came, you know, did all these things. But he was tempted throughout that 40 days as well, too. We just weren't, aren't told what they are. And uh, perhaps a lot of those temptations act, actually had to do, <clears throat> excuse me, with what, with what Hebrew says, he's tempted in every way as we are. Because those three temptations doesn't necessarily cover <laughs> the full spectrum of temptations that we all faced, right? Um, so, <clears throat> so anyway, so that's, so any questions about that? Is, is, is uh, sinlessness and maybe, you know, the reasons presented here, you know, and maybe, you know, maybe you have thought about some of these, you know, things about the, the temptation not being real or, 
Um, he wasn't, you know, obviously he was human as ever, right? And the temptations were real. So um, there's really not any, and the scriptures tell us that he was sinless anyway. We have to believe the scriptures regardless. So any questions? Is it making sense maybe? <laughs> It says, uh, you may be saying, I don't know where it's coming from. We don't know. <laughs> Excuse me. Okay, so Jesus is fully human, right? So we talk about that. Um, <clears throat> probably what I, how much time do I have left? 10. <laughs> yeah, really. I may have to skip over to, uh, I'll go through this real quick, and then we look at Jesus being God, the son of God, right? I want that, fully God. Um, so the other one, you know, the other meaning, the usage of the word son of man is that he is representative of humankind. Uh, and I probably don't need to get too much more into that, except to, to say this. Um, <clears throat> Adam served as our representative in the Garden of Eden. And through his disobedience, God counted all of humanity guilty. Jesus was our representative and obeyed on our behalf where Adam had disobeyed and failed. And so Paul puts it this way, says, therefore as one trespass led to the condemnation of all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. <clears throat> um, and so really what it's saying, uh, uh, um, <clears throat> let me find my place here. So the, the, the son of man is not only embracing is his humanity as just a human being, but it also expresses the fact that is is here as a representative of humankind. Uh, he was fulfilling a role as our representative, both in his life, uh, <clears throat> his life of righteousness. Um, he's the second regarded, you know, as the second Adam. You ever heard that term, right? We had the first Adam <clears throat> and the second Adam. And then the third usage, I'll just touch on this. Um, well, uh, why is it important and uh, that Jesus was fully human? Uh, first, his sinless life, his life of obedience, lived out as a human being, served as our representative obedience. I said that a minute ago. In other words, his sinless life was essential to him securing the merit necessary for us to receive his righteousness as a free, free gift, which is imputed to us as part of his justification. <clears throat> if Jesus' perfect obedience was done as God, not as human being, he would be of no benefit to us as humans because human beings are the ones who sinned against God. <clears throat> and the second reason, is why it was necessary for him to be fully human is that he could not have died. <clears throat> he could not have died in our place and paid the penalty, which was due us, um, 
the writer of Hebrews puts it this way, says, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of, of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, right? And so we'll leave it at that. And then the, the third usage, I'll just touch on that, just is that he, the son of man refers to the highly exalted Christ. And we see we're going to be studying, uh, getting into chapter seven, I think, of Daniel uh, in a minute. Not in a minute, but in a couple. <laughs> yeah, really. In a, in a, in a couple of weeks or so. <clears throat> and we'll see that actually come up where in his vision, he saw the son, you know, the son of man exalted um, and, and all that. So we'll leave it at that. And we're going to get into talking about Jesus was fully God. And for that, um, we're going to look at a couple of passages. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. And the second one is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And um, I'm not going to spend the time to necessarily read those. Um, they're actually in, I think they're in the outline, right? Okay, so you'll have them there. And so um, for the sake of time, won't, won't read it. But uh, <clears throat> so here are a few definitive, definitive statements from these passages addressing Jesus' deity. Um, he is the image of the invisible God. And the word image speaks of Christ being the very essence and substance of God. Hebrews 1.3 tells us he's the radiance of his glory and the exact representation, representation of his nature. Uh, all the fullness of deity dwells in him, it tells us in Colossians. Um, <clears throat> another thing we find about, about Christ in uh, being deity in, in Colossians, it says he's the firstborn over or of all creation. And uh, that word firstborn is not referring to his birth as a baby, his incarnation, nor that he, does it mean that he was created, right? <clears throat> the word firstborn speaks of his preeminence over all creation. Um, it denotes <clears throat> that he preceded the whole creation, only God did, right? And, um, <clears throat> that, and that he's sovereign over all creation. Um, <clears throat> in fact, uh, Colossians uh, 1, verses 16 and 17 also tells us, for by him all things were created, both in heavens and earth, visible, indivisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, and all those things. All things were created by him, for him, and he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. Says it all there, right, as far as God, he's fully God, right? Um, <clears throat> verse 19 in Colossians 1, all the fullness of deity dwells in him. Fullness implies completeness, completeness of God's being. <clears throat> This completeness of deity dwells, it says, abides lastingly or permanently in Christ. And so to finish up, why was it necessary then for Jesus to be fully God, uh, to be deity? <coughs> Excuse me, sorry. 
There are three reasons which Grudem discusses in his book, Bible Doctrine. It says only someone who is infinite God could bear the full penalty for all of those who would believe in him. No finite creature would have been capable of bearing that penalty. Second, salvation is from the Lord and the whole message of scripture is designed to show us that no human being, no creature could ever save man. Only God himself could do that. And thirdly, only someone who was truly fully God could be the mediator between God and man. So the inevitable conclusion is this, if Jesus is not fully God, guess what? We have no salvation and ultimately there's no Christianity. Then, any questions? That's, that's it. We're, I think that puts us at about five, 45 minutes. So maybe one question or any questions? <laughs> well, uh, I studied, <laughs> but that's yeah, yeah. So I, I look, you know, I really actually dig into these things, and and because I want to understand what, what, what these things are, what's saying, and the whole passage in Colossians actually, I you know I skipped over it, but <clears throat> but uh, really, there was this heretical teaching in the church, like many other churches, but uh, this one teaching, they're kind of a combination of things, but <clears throat> uh, it was a form of Gnosticism, which elevated knowledge and all that kind of stuff, but it denied the deity of Christ, right? That's part of that teaching. And Paul, when he heard of it, he was in prison in Rome <clears throat> and it was so disturbing to him immediately, you know, I don't say immediately, but that was one what prompted the writing of the letter to, you know, to, you know, because this thing was apparently spreading very rapidly in the church. And so he wanted to set straight, you know, you know, who Jesus is in his, in his deity and his supremacy is, is God and all that kind of stuff. So, so anyway, but the word itself actually, um, that's what it, so firstborn by itself, and I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but firstborn could mean actually a couple of different things because in the same passage, Colossians, it says Christ is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So you might ask, so what does that mean? <laughs> you know, um, here it says he's, you know, he's firstborn over creation. And it kind of explains that, you know, explains like in the passage itself what that means. That's why I read verses 16 and 17. 
you know, he, all things were created by him, for him, and all those things. So that automatically says he's God. Who, who, had, who else created all things? Uh, and so forth. So um, half a minute, I'll tell you what <clears throat> firstborn from the dead means. It's not referring, uh, and it's not so much, of, obviously, we know his deity, but it, what it was is talking about his preeminence over death as, as the son of man. Um, Christ conquered death by, by defeating the one Satan who had power over death. His resurrection, and this is so much good news for us, actually, Christ's resurrection marked his triumph over death. He was not the first right to rise from the dead because he raised Lazarus, right? And there are other people in the Old Testament, Elijah raised the widow's son. There are other people that were raised from the dead. Uh, however, Christ, and this is where the firstborn comes in, he was the first to rise in an immortal glorified body. By doing so, he heads a whole new order or group who will also rise and receive immortal bodies. And guess who those are? Right, exactly. So I guess we should, I should leave. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <clears throat> All right. Thank you. Well, enjoy the rest of your evening. And I think there's some questions on the table that you guys are going to have some discussion about. So. All right, good night.